Um, I do agree. Yeah, it's fiction. About age and oh. prolific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, we're gonna get cancer. <laughs> I know. Um, right? What the hell am I doing? Good morning, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast. We're your hosts, Shannon Gareth. Hello, folks. Hello, folks. And today we are talking about, oh, what would be a good title for this, Gareth? Books that shaped us and made us want to become writers. Yeah, that sounds... a long title. It sounds good, you know. Um, my Life in Books. Oh. Right? That's even better. Yeah, My Life in Books. There you go. Um and and really, you know, we haven't talked about who we are particularly. There have been hints, subtle hints, but not particularly. And I suppose this podcast is going to draw a bit of a map around how we read and who we are as readers, which then people could, I suppose, take or leave. They might say, well, if that's what they like, Sodom. Or they might say, oh, my you know, uh, they know what they're doing. And I think that's how book reviews work, isn't it? Like book reviews, you, you kind of build a, a brand. Yeah, I agree. So um, did you want to kick us off today? Because I think this was a little bit of your idea. Yeah, this is all my fault. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, okay. So I was thinking that maybe we would talk about it in three parts. So basically uh, early childhood, um, and then I suppose across your sort of school years and university years, you get a sort of a framework of texts that, that are provided to you. And so I saw that the developing years and then kind of where we are now as readers and what's been happening lately. Uh, and by lately, I mean sort of any time in the last 20 years. So, um, well, that's for me in any case. Uh, I suppose lately for you would be the last 10 years or such. Yeah. Do you yeah, mean post-university? I, I kind of mean 25 up, really. And uh, for me, that is 20 years. And for you, it's about five. Five? Yeah. So that's a little different. But, um, yeah. So so it's, I guess... why you're so well-read, Gareth. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's like Margaret Atwood said, right? She's not prolific. She's just been around long enough to have written a lot of books. So I've been around long enough to read a few books. Um, yeah. And in so, that time, have you seen like books change quite a bit? Uh, no, no, not especially. Um, I don't think there's yeah. been massive shifts from the sort of mid seventies to now. There certainly have been some some interesting shifts in publishing, and you know, with the advent of digital publishing and the um, the rise of the audio book. Um, mm. uh, the audiobooks existed before, but not at the same level that they're at now. So would you like to, so that's kind of a, a, f a framework for what we're going to discuss. Um, how about I, I throw over to you though, Shannon, and tell me what the first, the first book that really had an impact on you happened to be. The one that I remember when I was the youngest is the rainbow fish. What's that about? Um, it's just a fish that has a sparkling um, scale and then I think it loses it, but then all its friends still loved it anyway because it was still a special fish. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that's a yeah. nice message. So was it visually mm. quite impressive? I get the sense that the sparkling 
uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. I remember the color palette of the book was pastel, and then you had this one scale that was super sparkling. Yeah, right. Like a beauty spot. And you could, yeah, and you can touch it, and it was slightly raised out of the book pages. Oh, a tactile read. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Well, mine's a bit like that too. Uh, my book was inspired by the writer seeing a hole punch, uh, a hole punched into a page, and they went, that's just genius, let's do that. And that was Eric Carle. Um, and we're, we're going all the way back to 1969 and The Very Hungry Caterpillar, which was the first book that really impressed me as a child. I can't believe that book is so um, from 1969 because 69. I remember that book quite vividly as well. Yeah. And yeah, it's still it's a big, big hit. When it's a good one, it's just a good one, right? And they don't have to remake it like they do with films because it was already in mm-hmm. colour. And Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of handy. Because my friend who's got a child, they um, there's, there's merchandise for the Hungry Caterpillar now. You can get a Hungry Caterpillar teddy. Um, the books are all slightly different, but, I mean, I think all the images are still the same. Wow, that guy must be so excited. I'm Well, if he's still kicking, Eric Carl, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't actually research that. They should do a very Hungry Caterpillar hole punch, in, in, in other words, instead of a hole. It creates a, a very hungry caterpillar shape. I th- I would buy that in a. In yeah, a I would love to sell that to all the councils in Australia. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Finally, some decent work. Yes. <laughs> um, and and uh, what about? Uh, I suppose we're talking about merchandise uh, a little bit, and one of the companies that really uh, hooked into merchandising in the 1980s, at least. Uh, was Puffin Books. Oh, yes. You remember your Puffins? I do remember my Puffin Books, but I can't remember a distinct title of a Puffin Book. Oh. But I remember the, um, the, t- the, the spine Well, you very know, vividly. 1969, it's a big year. So Kay Webb uh, was um, Puffin's second editor, and she took over in 61. And she had a dream, Kay Webb did, and and she built Puffin Books up. So by 1969, now what's the numbers? Okay, so when she took over, they had 51 titles in their range. And by 1969, they had 1,213. Wow. Yeah, she really built it up. Um, and Puffin Books for me were a massive part of my reading childhood. So you got things like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and one that I just, I've never forgotten, and I have a terrible memory, but I've never forgotten, Stig of the Dump by Clive King, um, where a boy finds another boy living in a dump who's basically prehistoric. Uh, that's about as much as I remember of it, but I remember being completely overwhelmed by this story and the idea that it could happen to me because, you know, garbage dumps, they were around. I thought maybe if I go to the garbage dump, I'll meet a little boy there who's been living there on whatever Stig was living on. And, of course, then in the 80s, Puffin was the company that um, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston approached with the concept of fighting fantasy books. Uh, so this is, you know, the idea that you, you read a bit of the book and you have choices and you pick um, what I would call lexias. You pick a lexia, so, so it might be 
you go to page 149 or you go to page 80, depending on your choice. Um, there also there was another one called Choose Your Own Adventures, but I was a fighting fantasy boy. And you had to use dice, I think. Yes, dice. Um, and uh, there were others that used coins. But the fighting fantasy books were huge, and they were fascinating to me because they were like games. Uh, but one thing I started to notice as a child was that by being given a specific choice, I felt constrained. Mm, I felt like I had less movement than I did in a regular book. So for example, when you're reading a fighting fantasy book, you, you, you might have two choices. You have to make a choice and then go to the page that reflects that choice. So it's a bit like being on a roller coaster. You zoom in along and then it has a, a fork and you can pick one or the other, but you very much have the sense, particularly because they're written in second person, that you're you're still on this roller coaster and you're choosing uh, different tracks, but you could go flying off at any minute. Whereas with say a stick of the dump, I could stop, uh, you know, lie, lying on my childhood bed, stare up at the ceiling for a while and imagine some stuff and then maybe go back a couple of pages and, and reread something that I was thinking about. Um, and so it, those, those books had a certain kind of momentum about, I do recommend them. But it was something interesting about those that I kind of had a sense of when I was a child that I was being manipulated on a certain level. And I don't mean that in a bad yeah. sense because books manipulate you, but in a very finite way that allowed me to actually see I was being manipulated. And this idea of agency for an author and making meaning together, I think that was the seeds of it for me. So Puffin Books was absolutely the centerpiece of my childhood reading life. How about wow. you? Did you have, did you have a puffin situation or were you uh, elsewhere? Um, I do remember one of those pick your own adventure books, uh, the just disgusting series. I remember quite vividly. There was a story where this little boy kid has to navigate throughout his house and his life. And you have your options A, B and C, but nearly at every step you were going to die so you wanted to turn on the toaster, you got electrocuted, you wanted to reach up and grab the cereal, a bowling ball fell on top of your head. Um, I, <laughs> so I suppose that is like the whole agency, you know, you think you're going to get out of this one, but you're definitely not. At the end, you're going to die. Actually, oh that's a pretty um, intense uh, lesson for a kid. I did not take that lesson back then. It was just a fun game of trying to get out of this maze of death traps, which is your household. Um, and your terrible parents who leave bowling balls in cupboards for you for, to land on your head when you're pulling out some plates. Yeah. Wow. But there was also silly ones in there as well. It's like, oh, your sister uh, walked out of the shower, there's a puddle on the floor, and you kind of can slip over that puddle and break your neck. It was all um, just a series of um, happy accidents or tragic ac accidents, as you like to say. The book that stood out for me was one that I won as an award through my school when I lived in Perth, and it was a book of fairy tales. A hardcover, there was, I think, almost 50 fairy tales in that, and I used to read that every single night. Um, and that's kind of what shaped uh, the next couple of years of me writing very quirky and weird stories about fairies and elves and dragons. Oh, okay. So you, you got into fantasy quite young by way of fairy tales well that was the first accessible book that I had that I could read but my mum 
very much shaped my reading material because she used to uh, pop $100 in a bookstore every time we used to go uh, just getting a trilogy set and they used to be scattered all over the house because she used to read on the couch, at the pool area, in the toilet. So there was just these volumes of books. And I started reading serious books. Well, not serious, but I'll explain that in a moment at quite a young age. Um, so I remember she had this beautiful Hobbit, the Hobbit book. Uh, again, hardcover. Mum never stinged on books. <laughs> and um, it had these pictures all through it, hand-drawn pictures. And it was just, I used to carry that book around with me all the time as well. And I've got a funny story about my reading material. Yeah. So, um, you know, for kids when they go to school and you're supposed to encourage them to read, they give you these tiny readers and then you, your parents is supposed to read it to you or you read it to your parents to prove that you're doing it. um, And then they sign off on it. So my parents were always busy and I never read the books because I hated them and I was already on uh, much more advanced um, text. And so one time I forged my mum's signature and, uh, you know, the next day mum gets called into the, the teacher's office to be like, you know, forgery is really bad. And then my mum just put the teacher in her place and she's like, my daughter doesn't have to read this stupid rubbish and stormed out. <laughs> Go, mum. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I guess family is important, really, isn't it? Like your family will shape you. Yeah. 100%. So my dad used to tell me a story, which was the hare and the tortoise. Um, and that is a very fond memory for me. It's unfortunately a frag, a fragmented memory, but um, he introduced me to the whole concept of the oral tradition of stories. So he would tell this story, which he kind of basically pulled out of his head. I mean, obviously he had the bones of it from the classic fable, but he he built it up over time. And then I expected him to say it word for word, and I would mouth it as we were going through. So I remember snatches like the hair lying down and the specific wording was the sun was shining, the bees were buzzing. Um, There's another bit about the tortoise um, racing going plod, plod, plod plod which is also interesting because four plods four plods folks and that's the you know that's the most common rhythm in music the four four uh and and there you know in the oral tradition you get the music the music of writing and so he had another bit and it was something like with the the hair stepped on a stick the stick swung up between his legs hit him behind the knees tripped him up and I can't remember the rest, but there was a certain rhythm to it that you can play out that sort of just came out organically over time and then became almost like etched in stone, like, like, a, ta- like, a, like a holy text for me. Uh, it's, it's very sad that I have such a bad memory, which I inherited from my father, uh, and neither one of us can remember the rest. But those little fragments are precious little stones that I still carry around with me um, and really introduced me to the oral tradition. So that was really important. So your mother read to you at night? um, Was she the reader? I think she was, yes. And um, it was kind of a full immersive experience. So so not only did she read to us at night um, with much convincing from the little kid that I was, (laughs) uh, she used to always uh, play video games with us as well. So one of a big standout one was um, 
Zelda, the Ocarina of Time. Big game. Mum used to just sit and play with us. We used to also do Donkey Kong. So we were already, as kids, immersed in different worlds all the time. And then I think around this time as well, Star Wars was huge. We had the special box set and then the Dark Crystal, this weird, quirky fantasy. So, yeah, all this stuff kind of got shoved into my head and to the point that when I eventually moved on to a different school and I started writing stories for uh, class English essays or whatever, Mum likes to tell the story that she got called into the office again. And <laughs> you're a problem you know, child. Just, you would think so, Goodness wouldn't me. you? But I was an angel. Mm. And yeah. um, the teacher's like, you know, we're worried about your daughter. She actually believes that you know, trends can uh, trees can pull up their roots and start walking. <sighs> that fairies just appear. And Mum's like, how do you know that's not real? Like okay, you believe in a god, why Why can't there be fairies or elves? And then she stormed out again with my hand in hers, oh, going well. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really getting fond of your mum right now. Uh, she sounds mm. amazing. Well, my mother used to take me to the library. That was her, that was her thing. Yeah. Um, and she, she really gave me a love of the concept of the brows. I, I think it's one of the great shames of our yeah. era that we've lost the art of the brows, the, the happy accident where you're just looking at shelves and something jumps out at you, you know, in, in, there's a lot to be said for a curated existence and having recommendations and, and, you know, certain rabbit holes you can disappear down. I, I appreciate all that. I'm not saying it's bad at all. Just the, the brows does seem to be largely lost. And it is a shame because the brows is wonderful. That's why I spend so much time in secondhand bookstores because you've got no idea what's what's coming around the corner in a secondhand bookstore. Yeah. And Do I you got think that is that because um sorry, that you know, the things like Yelp, um, Google Reviews, Goodreads started popping up a bit later on. And so now we have this very idea that we don't want to waste our time, we're just gonna go and get someone else's review. Kind of, well, yeah, but also just the idea that, you know, like we were talking about books and bow and I was saying that, you know, Willow really impressed me as a reader. And so when they recommend anything, I think, all right, like I'm open to it immediately. Um, even if from their synopsis, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know though. So you have a brand and, and we tend to have a whole series of, of sort of, brand identities that we we listen to um and that you know i i also do this with things like uh movie reviews there are certain like richard roper i like richard roper i trust him um he's not he doesn't have any particular biases that worry me so if he says something's good i'm like all right then and it probably is uh, i might not like it but i'm not wasting my time by trying it and that's yeah. that's all great but you know, I, I think what we should do on this podcast is something new, um, is we should film ourselves going into libraries or secondhand bookstores and talk about it. What have I found? I like this spine. I'm going to read the back. Oh my God, no, the American dream. I'm out of it. Put it back on the <laughs> shelf, you know, uh, and things like that. And because, you know, I, I do this all the time and, you know, I, I, I have a, a process Part of it's visual, part of it's the title, all these things going through your head. But I discover 
new writers and new texts all the time. And that's one of the most thrilling things, I think. It's like a whole world opens up. You've discovered a secret forest. And yeah. it's thrilling. It's it's really it thrilling. Is. It might be a fun thing to do. I could get Joan. That's my that's my wife, folks, my, my better lovely half. Uh, I could get her to film me in the bookstore. She'd love that. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, we could kind of do a piece and maybe we could both, um, you know, profile different bookstores, uh, particularly secondhand yeah. ones that are always, you know, fighting to stay on top, stay ahead. And I always used to lament that instead of, you know, for dates, uh, if, uh, if any single people listening to us, you want to take your lovely um, gal on a date, take them to a secondhand bookstore or a library, or a bookstore. Um, yeah, this is so much better than laying, um, you know, $50 down for a dinner, um, another 20 on top of that for drinks. You know, a book's going to cost you $20. She's, yeah, just do that instead. That's a really good idea. Yeah, you go, you go to a bookstore, you get a book of French poetry, you pretend that you can actually read it beyond phonetically, and then you take it <laughs> to a coffee shop, drink whatever she's having, Ah, that's clever. And then you just read her some French poetry. And then when she asks you what it means, you, t- you just tell her whatever you, you can make up. And then she goes, well, I'm actually, you know, a major in French poetry and you're an idiot. And that's how that'll, that's how that'll flow. But she might appreciate the effort. Um, you never know. But yeah, it's always I, about the effort. <laughs> it's always about the effort. You got to sort of, when you're generally hapless, you have to, uh, hang your hat on the fact that you're trying. But yeah, the library was big for me. And one thing that I loved in the library, I I recall, was they would have hardback Doctor Who novelizations. And it gave the books a real uh, gravity. You know, oops, they're hardbacks. That's that's something. And I was a massive fan of, of... Doctor Who and British television in that era. It was a, it was a good time to be a Me child. Too. Yeah, Monkey Magic, The Goodies, Doctor Who, Tom Baker. But reading those novelizations was fascinating. They weren't wonderfully written books, but they were an, a really great way to start to understand how novels differ from television and movies and the scope of them and what needs to be added to a book that is immediately available in visual format. So I think I really got a lot of that from Doctor Who novelizations, um, m- many of which were written by uh, Terence Dix. So I'll give him a shout out because he's largely unheralded as a writer. And I suppose the Doctor Who novelizations are a little bit like romance novels, like a Mills and Boone. They're, they're formulaic. It's difficult to write with verve in a formulaic structure and it actually requires an enormous amount of skill. I'm going to put this down forever. It requires an enormous amount of skill to write a good Mills and Boone book. A crummy writer can't write a good Mills and Boone book. So I've said it, you know, you can hold that against me forever. Um, And also Doctor Who flowered into this love of science fiction. So you had fantasy, I think, primarily. I I had science fiction. Yeah, we also used to watch Doctor Who as well. Mm. Um, I mean, they are different, but I see them, they work simultaneously together. There's a lot of imagination that goes in. It's like soft fantasy and hard fantasy, I think is what it's called. Oh, um, I think collectively they're now called speculative fiction. 
Um, oh, but I, I, I don't find that a useful term, personally. No. No, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Um, and then you've got your, yeah, your hard and soft sci-fi. I don't know if there, is there hard and soft fantasy. There probably is. Because um. uh, they were describing. Oh, gosh, where are you? Isaac Asimov as hard fantasy. Not hard sci-fi. Hard sci-fi. Yeah, because I think it's attached to that. Okay. Um, and I think it's to do but with then- scientific credibility or plausibility mm-hmm. or yeah. But then speculative fiction, I imagine 1984, George Orwell, or we, um, that's what I picture when we talk about speculative fiction. We by Yevgeny Zamyatin. I think I said that right. Yeah. I thought I should just say that because it just sounds like you just said we. <laughs> we. I know. And I just, the author was just on the tip of my tongue and I just couldn't do it. But thanks, Gareth. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Um. I mean, Philip K. Dick, I I got my love of Philip K. Dick around that time too. Obviously saw Blade Runner, um, which is based on his novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? He always had great titles. Uh, Total Recall. Total Recall was We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. All sorts of great stuff like that. And, of course, Stanislaw Lem was probably um, somewhere in that thread through Isaac Asimov as well. Um, his robot stories were were stunning to me, and I love the way that he was very much a mystery writer. Like he wrote mysteries, often set in space, but most of his stories are underpinned by this um, sense of mystery and the unknown, uh, which may or may not be explicated. Whereas um, Stanislaw Lem, I think, is more is less intellectual, more emotional, and I know he'd hate that. I don't know the man, but I, I know he'd hate me saying that. But and and some of the science in Stanislaw Lem is incredible. The 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 degree of thought and structure he's put into it. But for me, mm-hmm. what Lem talks about is is the human experience within that space, within the unknowable, and that's very much an emotional journey. And there's very few books that are as powerful emotionally to me as something like Solaris. Which, which is an extraordinary love story come murder mystery, come sci-fi adventure, come philosophical treatise. <laughs> it's an amazing book, that one. Yeah. A more recent um, sci-fi book that just delves so deeply into the science, the technology, Andy Weir, um, Weir, Weir, I'm pretty sure it's Weir. Uh, the Martian is one that most people are familiar with, mm. but he's done a, another one called Hail Project Mary, and it's so it's not a, it's not an emotional book I would say as um, Stanislaw Lem, but you just get so excited about him talking about science in a very understandable way. So hats off to him. My partner loved that one, and yeah, great writers. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about our topic today. Um, and then, sorry, you I go. Could, sorry, I was just going to say I could see how he he may have influenced you by the way you're describing him. Andy Weir? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, this was a very recent uh, listen. It was an audible book, and I don't know if he has influenced me. Well, you've mentioned The Martian quite a number of times, not not during this podcast, just, you know, as part of our friendship. I've never seen The Martian. No. Oh, no, I have seen The Martian. You've mentioned it a lot of times. Um, Oh, it's because uh, there was a friend. Anyway, um, Yeah. That's too long an anecdote. That'll take us to Mars, will it? 
Yeah, yeah, it would. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm just I'm... impressed by the thought behind it all. It wasn't just whimsically thrown together. Yeah, I didn't poke a single hole in any of his stuff, which to me is really impressive. Well, that's what I mean by the influence. I think you're very thoughtful about how you construct your stories and making sure that you've done your research and that they're not sort of flimsy, I suppose. I can't see you writing soft sci-fi, even if it's not hard sci-fi in the sense of being grounded in current technology that might have been, you know, extrapolated into the future as something else. I still think it would have a physics to it that would make sense, which... uh, which is important, I think. Yeah. So what about, so your dad, is he mm-hmm. a reader? Because we've done your mum, we've done my mum and dad. So we're, we're working through the family at this point. Um, your dad and, and of course you have a sister. Have they influenced yeah. you as a reader at all? So my dad is a reader of the Farm Weekly. Um <laughs> a magazine that comes out once a week mm-hmm. for farmers. Um, even though he doesn't do that as much, he still reads it religiously. But he never was, and he used to call it a waste of time. And then when I started writing uh, when I was younger in these uh, big, thick pads, he was like, oh, what are you doing? Come out and help me work. Let's do something productive. Oh, no. And even now to this day, uh, I'll come visit. I'll take my laptop, sit on the kitchen table and just type away. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? He doesn't understand that well, the world has moved on to a screen and sitting down. Uh, to him, productivity is still being outside and pushing stuff around, rocks. I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty much what farmers do. I, I believe they do move rocks from one side of the garden to they the other. They do yeah. because I used to have to do that with him. <laughs> um, I think he was training we, you in some way. It's like just keep moving these rocks and I'll teach you the myth of Sisyphus, something like that. Oh, well, maybe. Maybe that's exactly what he was teaching me. <clears throat> so I've got my sister, my sister Katrina. She's um, my older sister. She gave me three books that were incredibly important to me as a as a reader, but also as a writer. And there's no, and there's a fair bit of time between each of these gifts. So I think um, I'm going to take this opportunity to, to shoehorn her in um, because I'm not quite sure where it falls in my chronology. Uh, one of them was a lover's discourse fragments by Roland Barthes. That's a very important book to me. It was a, it was a breakup book. Uh, my first girlfriend had dumped me and obviously it was, it was the end of the world. Um, and so she gave me this book and it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's fictive or it's novelistic in its tone and shape. Um, but it is uh, a work of, Gosh, what is it a work of? Literary criticism, philosophy, some linguistics is in there. Roland Barthes was known as a, as a key figure in semiotics. Um, it's a beautiful book. And what it doesn't do is it's not a self-help book. It doesn't tell you how to get over a broken heart. It shows you um, by way of Goethe, the writer, and the, the sorrows of young Werther. It shows you what it is to have a broken heart in lots of different ways. And that was incredibly comforting because it was universal. So as, as I was um, pining away for this first girlfriend, I found that other people had also done that. And they'd done things like sit by the phone, which I guess doesn't really happen now, but used to happen. 
uh, and things like that. And that was, that was massive for me. The second book she gave me that was really important was the infernal desire machines of Dr. Hoffman, which we've, uh, covered briefly, um, in our, in our piece on, uh, postmodernism. What I love about Angela Carter, Angela Carter cross deals with fairy tales and mythic structures. Um, but what blew me away about Angela Carter is she doesn't write the way you're supposed to write. There's a, there's an overarching narrative that sort of stems down through Hemingway of a sort of a sparse, masculine, muscular style. And that's correct. Right. Yeah. And she is not like that at all. Um, she's, she's got a very, what I would, would risk calling a feminine style. Um, and it's, it's poetic and, it's certainly not messy, but it's, it's like full of vines. I don't know how else to, ex- she would describe a castle wrapped in vines and that was kind of her writing. And I absolutely fell in love with it and it massively influenced my writing. I would not say I have a, a muscular, masculine style of writing. I think it's, uh, f- leans to more towards the feminine. And I and I'm very I strongly believe that uh, that that there is no gendered writing in the sense that you know Shannon because you're a woman you write like a woman I hate that idea and it's it's such a popular idea it's such a stupid idea yeah. um, so that was a big one for me and I recommend that book, both those books to anyone and then the third book was more recent and that was the Hotel Iris by Yoko Ogawa and Yoko Ogawa is my touchstone writer when I stop being able to write for whatever reason, life gets in the way. I just kind of fall into a ditch. I go back to Yoko Ogawa and I read some of her work, um, most specifically the diving pool. And for me, the way she writes that is perfect. It's, it's as close to the way I want to write as I've ever seen. And it always just kind of drags me back to the space. I need to the headspace I need to be in to create stuff again. And so she's like my golden charm. I don't know if, if you have one of those, but th- those three books from my sister were massive planks in who I am as a reader and a writer. Uh, so I have so many questions. Yeah, go for Are it. Are those the only three books your sister ever gifted you or they're no. the standout three? They're the standout three. Um, she's gifted okay. me lots of books uh, very kindly, um, but they were the three that rocked my world at various times. And they're three of the most important books in terms of who I am as a writer. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm impressed that she's the one that uh, gifted you Lover's Discourse because you talk about that book all the time. And I thought yeah. that was something that had come up through your research. I wasn't aware that this was a gift. So your whole life could be uh, devoid of buts if it wasn't for your sister. I Yeah, I, I think so. Um when I, when I started doing academic work and, and research and such, what I saw in, in Barts is that he is one of the most important theorists in the realm of creative writing. And he's not seen that way by anyone else, as far as I can see. But you can take so many of his works and apply them to the craft of writing and learn enormous amounts from them. Something I, I really want to do at some point is make that clear to people so that they can see what a resource he is and what creative writing academia should kind of look like because I've read a lot of the regular kind and it's deeply underwhelming and uh, not very useful. 
so yeah, so so I I had an introduction to him. And then when I started getting into the theory of creative writing, I thought, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. So I'm just going to go read him, even though he's not in my area. And he really was in my area. It's just no one sees it. So yeah, he's, he's very important. Yeah. Did your sister ever give you a book that, that kind of shaped you at all? No. Um, (laughs) That was probably a really tough question. Sorry. No, no, um, I was just trying. So she also reads a lot of fantasy. Um, You know, this is a thread that's existed from my mum. But she reads slightly different to me. It's very narrow compared to what I read. So she doesn't enjoy reading any books with an eye perspective, uh, point of view. Uh, She doesn't like, and she's too scared to venture to other authors because um, it's not what she's familiar with. So she will read the same books over and over and over again. Um, one of the ones she's rereading at the moment is the High Hyrule Chronicles by an Australian author. Oh, man. Mm. But that will be in the show notes. Do you, and, think, um, do you think rereading has value? Has, do you think it's had value for her, the idea of rereading? I think rereading is good. But I would stop when you're not getting anything new from it. And the last discussion I had with her is she's not getting anything new from it. It's boring. It's just something that she does because she's bored. And it's like, well, if you're bored, let's, you know, spark up some of those brain cells. Let's try something new. Um, But it's always a bit of an adventure. Although she has uh, bought the Lord of the Rings series. Wow. Because she wants to know. Oh, interesting. She wants to know because Lord of the Rings has this very long it's called an info dump, but it's not really. It's just him explaining his world a bit more. I think that is an and, info dump, though. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Jake, uh, Tolkien is um, lauded as, you know, the the king of this high, like, high fantasy world. And she was she wants to write her own book and she wanted to know how come he gets away with it. But all the creative writing books she listens to, it's like, no, 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 don't do that. So she wanted to see why. I mean, we have our thoughts on creative writing books and mm. these these ideas of what you should and shouldn't do. So I encourage her to go get the book and, you know, it's working in this setting. It's all a bit of context, isn't it? It is. Um, I think that Tolkien could have, I mean, this feels like blasphemy, doesn't it? But Tolkien could have done a bit better in that regard. The work he did, in in terms of developing the languages and the culture, the history is extraordinary, and he should be lauded for that. And it, and it is a good story, and it's very well crafted, um, and he he writes really well. But absolutely, I think it's about forty eight pages, forty eight pages of of setting the scene. Um, when I I read that, which I think- is not a lot in a one thousand page book and that's kind of part of it people kind of go oh, don't worry you'll get there but it's not great and i think this um has created this rather worrying trend uh, which i see around george R. R. martin's work where people go it's okay he's setting up for the next big thing so you've got to get yeah. through that 200 pages of waffle because it's very important in the way it sets up the next big thing and i'm not sure that's often true um, but in any case, you know, reading should have some value from moment to moment. And I, I personally, like, I, I feel very strongly that 
Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea is an, is a superior piece of fantasy on, on pretty much every level. Um, so again, like I'm, I'm going to be lynched. I'm saying all sorts of stuff. I'm bigging up, uh, Mills and Boone and yeah, no one's going to listen to me ever again. <laughs> Um, but I, I really believe that. And, and she has quite an epic tone to those books and they're quite told at mm. times, but she's very sneaky about the way she frames um, what they currently call law in her writing. And, and she actually, there, there are no info dumps at all in her world. And yet she manages to create an enormous amount of history and culture across those books very artfully crafted. I, I kind of feel like my understanding of Tolkien's process was that he spent an enormous amount of time doing research and and building this world before he sat down to write the Lord of the Rings story. And I think he suffers from that in that that's what he had. He had this enormous um, historical perspective. And so it starts off that way. And for me, I remember I read it for the first time when I was 11. It was uh, it was a grind. I was I, and I remember it was about forty eight pages because finally Gandalf sits down with his pipe, and they're having the party, and suddenly everything starts happening, and it continues to happen. The book never does it again, but in those first f- sort of fifty pages, it really does. And he could have worked that in, um, and yeah. I think the book would be better for it. Um, you know, send your uh, death threats to this address, but I I really do think it would have been better for it. I also read Lord of the Rings when I was 11, I think, or a bit younger, and those first pages, I'd pick it up, and these are like big words for a little child, put it back down, I'll I'll walk onto it. And then I remember a certain point when it didn't matter anymore and you just kind of read through it because it was so enjoyable. Um, But then around that same age, and just bringing it in from Ursula Le Guin, uh, was when Harry Potter came out for me, was when... I was 10, 9, 10. And this was the first time that I was reading something that the rest of the world was reading. And finally I could talk about reading with all my peers because Harry Potter was a big deal. Um, And, yeah, I mean, that doesn't normally happen. We talk about all these cool books that we're reading, but I can't go down the street and be like, hey, have you read Solaris by Stanislaw Lem? They look at me blankly, but I can go down the street and say, hey, have you read Harry Potter? And most people will say yes. So that was a huge shift for me, being able to talk about books. And also that was another shift in my writing style. Uh, I remember writing this very long, awful story about kids going to a school. The main character was born on Halloween day, and I didn't realise that, you know, a million people were born on a single day. But this was very special in my main character's whole story being the chosen one. And, yeah, I'm so glad that that book is gone. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like a lot of fun, actually. That's such a fascinating really idea. Fun. I mean, I, I haven't read Harry Potter. I tried reading a few pages and went, nah, I'm not going to bother. So, again, send your death threats to this uh, this address. Or maybe it should be hate mail. We should work up to death threats. Yeah, hate mail is <laughs> a bit of a soft introduction, isn't it? But, yeah, it's a, that's a fascinating idea. The, the, I, I've never had that experience ever. Nothing like it. Um, two or three people, a book club, you, you know, and even in a book club, you, you might say, okay, well, 12 people will have read this book, but about half of, half of us don't get around to it. So you inevitably just 
getting excited with two or three other people. But the idea of an entire generation of people having these connections never occurred to me, but it's really profound. Yeah. Uh, How has it affected your writing, would you say, though? Could you put a finger on it? I'm, I'm sure it has. You said something really profound last week's podcast, so everyone go listen to that one. Um, when you're writing and drafting, you as a person will change from one moment to the next. So um, back at that age, it really shaped me because I was in a country school, was about to go off to boarding school. I read the story of, you know, you don't know that you're you're a magical being, but an owl's going to drop off a letter and invite you to a wizard school. And I was just mortified that I didn't get that letter and I was going to get sent away, packed off to a boarding school and I just wanted something else. And, you know, that desire really, um, you know, moved into my writing. In terms of how it's affecting me now, I can't say that it does. I think it does. Although, it, I mean, it would, but I'm not writing about wizard schools anymore. No, but, um, um, like, I came to the concept of um, – readers and writers creating meeting together through post-structuralism. That was, you came to it, I think more instinctively. And I wonder if Harry Potter wasn't the, the reason why, because you would have been making meaning with other readers in these large group conversations. Probably. And we used to play Harry Potter games. Um, yeah. And Quidditch. It's uh, yeah, maybe. Because typically, you know, you've got the myth of the solitary writer. You also have the myth of the solitary reader, you know, lonely little Shannon away from the other kids lying against a tree, reading a book. And it's seen as a very much an isolated, discreet thing. You're, you're off on your own. Um, there's no connection to it, but, and, and really if people play games, it's like stuff like from Westerns or, you know, movies and things, but this was a book and that's certainly, was not an experience I could possibly have had as a child because, I mean, Harry Potter was very significant in the sense that it also crossed age groups like no book has before. Quite quite an astounding yeah. achievement for Rowling. Yeah. Mm. So my Nana's boyfriend, who's 80-something now, uh, he reads it every year, the whole series, again and again. Um, and... Uh, when she first introduced him, Peter, to us, we would connect on Harry Potter. This this wizard old guy was reading the same book that I was and he would talk about it all the time. I wish uh, I dragged him into a Harry Potter trivia game. He would have been a real asset on my team. It sounds like he would have been. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's the kind of devotion Lord of the Rings gets. Um, you know, uh, Christopher Lee famously um, read it every year at Christmas. And I believe he did the audio book of it. He was, he was a massive advocate of that book. Mm. Whereas the Lord of the Rings books was never as accessible uh, as Harry Potter. People only started talking about Lord of the Rings, I remember, when the movies came out. Um, and then there was me parroting in the cinema. Oh, you know, they got that right. That wasn't in the book. Smart ass, Shannon. But, yeah, it wasn't as big as phenomenon for my generation, Lord of the Rings, compared to Harry Potter. Yeah, I mean, I guess time will tell. I think the Bible is the biggest selling book in history, um, and the second yeah, to that you've is got all the hotels that have to put it. I in know, well. right? What an unfair advantage! But the second yeah. is, is Lord of the Rings. Oh wow! Yeah, amazing. So I don't know where Harry Potter fits in that. I'm sure it's racing up. 
as we speak, but Lord yes. of the Rings has an awfully big head start, and the Bible has a ridiculous head start. It's not even fair. Um, I do agree. <laughs> yeah, it's fiction about age and oh. prolific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, we're gonna get cancer. <laughs> I know. Um, right? What the hell am I doing? Um, um, talking about the next big influence. <laughs> yes. Um, Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series. Oh, yes. Huge. This, I think this was, I mean, vampires were around before, but this was the real, to me, the real wedge into my generation in terms of uh, good vampires that are just out to love and suck your blood but not kill you and having to figure out. Anyway, Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series. I, I read it at the time and loving it and rereading it, and now I look back and try and read it. I'm deeply disturbed by the Twilight series in terms of this pathetic main character, Bella, who's a victim in distress, who always stumbles about, nah, nah, save me, Edward, and then get, getting pregnant at such a young age and getting married because, you know, she has to become a vampire. I'm so – I wish people don't read this book anymore. I, I've it's been so told True Bloods like that. Um, I haven't, I haven't read. I haven't read True um, but I've been told that it is, and that Suki is um, a little <laughs> what bit a name. right. Uh, and you always have to say it like Bill Suki is um, a bit, a bit airheaded, really. I mean, I again, I've got no, uh, I've only got this on trusted opinion, but but apparently so. Again, not a, not a great female role model, um, but you know, right in with your um, hate mail or uh, with your thoughts on that and whether or not those books do actually craft. Cause I, I think the TV series had some wonderful characters. I, I am familiar with the TV series. Uh, I think Bill was great. Yeah. I love the way he used to say the name. Sook. It was he Australian. He seems to have a mm. bit of a twang happening. Uh, British actor, oh, Stephen, okay. Stephen Sook Moyer. It. Yeah. 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 Sucker. Um, <laughs> but that was probably the issue. It's like, it's not a good female. It's not like a female character taking charge of her situation. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. But things are improving in that regard as, as we work our way into our school years. I don't have a lot to say about my school years, really. And by this, I'm sort of talking about the end of my primary school years and then into there's a few things that I do recall jumped out at me. Obviously the wizard of earth. See that was introduced to me, I believe at primary school, Shakespeare, especially Macbeth. Uh, Shakespeare impressed the hell out of me. I mean, what a guy, what a guy, like he continues to impress the hell out of people century after century. That's pretty impressive folks. Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. That, um, was also a very powerful book for me because of the way it, it's sort of political um, discussions that were occurring within this disaster. Um, Lord of the Flies, similar sort of thing, flipped around by William yeah. Golding and Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Uh, I was going to bring her up. My goodness. I mean, you know, if I was going to marry one of the Bronte sisters, it would be Emily um, Wuthering Heights is one of my favorite books. It's given me a lifelong lo love of romance. And, it, and in fact, I love romantic comedies. It's all coming out today. Um, good romantic comedies. Wuthering Heights is, is one of the great books. And she's also an amazing poet, Emily Bronte. Oh, I didn't know that. Absolutely stunning poet. 
really, really underrated. It's absurd. It's infuriating. I, I want to throw my glass across the room. I'm so angry about it. But people should go check out her, her poetry. It's marvellous. So what about you? Yeah. Books, school books. Uh, I don't remember. The only one I remember in primary school that we read, I don't know the title, but I remember the the story. It's about a guy who goes into a cave with his friend, something happens and then they get caught and the water is rising and rising up until they drown and he wakes up in bed and the whole story starts again. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I remember that one. But uh, Stephanie Meyer was early high school. So before I read her, uh, there's Ian Irvine mm-hmm. and Tracy Harding. So Tracy Harding is actually an Australian author. Um, and she had this cool story where it was a main female character falls through the hedgestones and gets transported into a different um, world. And she learns martial arts and does all this cool stuff. And that's what uh, encouraged me to go and do martial arts and do archery. So she actually uh, shaped my world quite a bit, this really cool female character. And then entering into early high school, this was when I read uh, Stephanie Meyer, uh, Bella's character coming back to it again because she was the Mary Jane. No, that's marijuana. What's the character for the female that just is like can't do anything wrong, very plain? Plain Jane. Yeah, that's not the term. But anyway, oh. uh, so she read books that were classics. And during this period, I got into my head that to be a proper lady, I had to start reading the classics because I hadn't up until this point. So that's entering in Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, Charlotte Bronte, uh, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. They were all a bit poo-poo except for Wuthering Heights. This was the best classic book that I read in that period. Uh, Can't stand, not that I can't stand Jane Austen. I just think it's really boring. Um, but then Lolita, huge game changer. I love Lolita. It was the first time that I got played with as a reader, you know, because uh, it's presented in such a way that I'm like, oh, you know, loving a child is okay. It's totally acceptable because the way that the main character, Humbert. Humbert, Humbert, um, yeah. Humbert um, portrays it. It's just this pure love dynamic. But then towards the end of the book, you're like, oh, God, he's actually, you know, messed up her life quite a bit um and then dracula and frankenstein frankenstein was a, an oh, yeah. amazing book oh frankenstein is an amazing book were these were any of these actual school texts though like did your school help you out as a reader did they give you anything to work with no because the ones i it listed was, um, were all school texts i can't actually remember what i, I was reading on the side I mean, maybe it was the conditioning from primary school that I didn't have to read the silly books that the uh, school recommended. Your mum will come in Um, and kick ass. Yeah, Yeah. but these were all found on my own front. In terms of uh, school books, uh, Strange Objects, another Australian author, that was a cool, quirky book. Uh, Maybe framed in a postmodern way, they were using news article pieces, framing the story, you never found out the ending, and the mystery has always stuck with me for that book. Yeah, right. There were some other um, school texts. So I actually enrolled into an English literature class year 11 because that's what all the smart English kids did. And I hated it. This was the first time we were being prescribed texts 
and I didn't have a choice. So I remember reading Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Ugh. Oh, you didn't like that one? <laughs> I like Heart of Darkness. Mm. <laughs> I didn't even finish it. Uh, Catch 22 was a little bit better. Oh, I love still, Catch like, 22. <laughs> I didn't, uh, to be fair, I didn't finish it because by that time she'd like removed all level of trust and I'm like, I'm not going to read anything you recommend. Um, Shakespeare. So I still am not. I've only ever enjoyed one Shakespeare thing. So she made us read Midsummer's Night or a passage of it. I'm like, yeah. But Othello by Shakespeare, that is still one of my favourite pieces. This whole concept of planting a seed of jealousy and it blooming on its own. Um, Oh, my goodness. I feel like we need to go on a a slight segue now in these podcasts. And and, and what we need to do is drag Shannon to see Shakespeare. Uh, I feel like this could be a sideline for us, and I'm going to make it my mission to uh, <laughs> to make you love Shakespeare. Could- well, in my defence, Lion King is based on Macbeth, is it? And oh, I like Lion King. Is it? Yeah, so Scar's the evil brother, the king, the exiled son comes back. It's either Macbeth or Hamlet. I think that's Hamlet. That sounds like Hamlet to me. I- well, there you go. I've seen Hamlet. Oh, I tell you what. The Russian Hamlet from the 1960s, Gamlet, um, which is a cute name. I'd name my child Gamlet. Um, is is fantastic. You should go. And and generally speaking, it's hard to get. You may have to go to your local library, and if they've got a viewing room, they may have a copy of Gamlet. And it's well worth watching, folks. It'll blow your mind. Okay. Um, I didn't do a lot of... Uh, like, I, I was quite happy reading the books given to me. I'm a company man. And uh, my mother wouldn't have gone down and kicked anyone's ass. So, so I was, you know, reading the books I was given. But I did, I did rebel a bit. I, in my last couple of years at school, I was rarely there, actually. I spent a lot of time at home uh, reading and listening. Uh, and I got very into The World According to Garp by John Irving. And after the Garp... I found that I was reading lots of Irving books. I think I read the first sort of eight or nine John Irving books in, in a kind of a strange order. Um, and Irving was the guy that made me want to become a writer. Uh, reading The World According to Garp was a big moment for me. Uh, I really recommend it as a book. It's an incredible book. And for some reason back then, it was, I, I was able to listen to music while I read books uh, like vocal music, oh, wow. which I can't do now. I can barely handle just instrumental music. And it was all early Beatles. I just, the, the, the very early Beatles albums, I'd have them playing on, on repeat. And I would just read these massive books, you know, he'd, he'd write big books. And so Irving made me want to become a writer. And I think he knows a lot about writing. Like he's a very interesting guy to hear interviewed about writing. He has a lot of, uh, a lot of insight. He wrote one called A Prayer for Owen Meany, um, which is not bad. It actually also includes about a 48-page info dump at one point that you could literally kick out and the book would be completely unchanged. But A Prayer for Owen Meany is a sort of an Americanization, a conscious Americanization of the tin drum by Gunter Grass. And it was from John Irving that I bounced over to Gunter Grass and the tin drum um, and discovered the extraordinary delights of European literature, sort of 20th century European literature, which wasn't getting a lot of an airing 
in Australian schools at the time. And so that was a big moment for me as well, finding Gunter Grass and listening to the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there, I, I went to art school after that. And so potentially I wouldn't have gone down the same literary pathways that I, that I ended up going down um, had I managed to stay in art school and not get kicked out. Uh, and Gunter Grass would have been my starting point into European literature. And I think I would have, um, well, it was always my starting point, but it would have, it would have greatly shaped the way it went thereafter. But fortunately I got booted out and went to university and did English literature. Now, university years. Beer was involved almost certainly. What were you reading in your heady university years? So university was actually the dark ages for me. So I first went to university doing a double degree in law and commerce, majoring in accounting and economics. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of reading of law text, economic text, a lot of accounting text, enough to make you fall asleep if you have issues with insomnia. And uh, Flanders? I did not have a chance. Did they give you any Mole Flanders from Daniel Defoe? No. Because that book has just an enormous amount of stuff about, like, economics in it. It's it's grinding. Uh, I definitely... No. Robinson Crusoe? Yes. Mole Flanders? No. I thought maybe they'd just throw some at you, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so this was the Dark Ages in terms of fantasy fiction era. But then I started reading things like Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, um, Karl Marx, Cities and the Wealth of Nations, all these economics books, and Rand? Ah, why can't I remember authors today? But that was also fun intellectually, but in terms of this sphere, not so much. And also I didn't last very long. I think I was two years into it. I was like, wow, I really don't want to be a lawyer. Everyone, all the colleagues in this circle are just not my type. I just can't imagine this. Uh, and I quit and then I moved on to something else. And that's when I moved into nutrition and biochemistry. And there's also a lot of text and a lot of science and a lot of, yeah. So I can't comment much on this era. But you were you oh, reading wait, throughout? There was one. Uh, no. So, and eventually it kind of all got too much and I took a gap year to Europe. And I read Night Train to Lisbon by Messa Pascal. Mm -hmm. And this was, this shaped my writing in terms of this was the first kind of philosophical book that I'd read that wasn't a philosophical book. It was a fun journey, but he weaved it in. And that was when I became really introspective and melancholy and started writing these florid pieces of how I was feeling deep inside. Um, yeah, so it was. It was a change, definitely, in my writing style and wanting to be like, hey, maybe I've got this all wrong. Money is not where I want to go. I don't want to go to Hong Kong, work in investment banks. I want to do something with my creative side of my brain because up until this point, it was all very much right side brain. Not that I think there's a lot of science Left. in this anymore. Left, yeah, right. Yeah, apparently the right side's the, uh, the creative side, apparently. Okay. Uh, and apparently... Uh, I've been told that's why so many, a disproportionate number of uh, artists and writers are left-handed against the... Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, if you, if you accept that hypothesis, but there you are. Yeah. 
So, so would you say your left or right brain? So left is the, the logical analytical side. Right is the flowery creative side. I think, can I say I'm both? Uh, I think when you're younger, you're encouraged to go down the analytical side of things. And I did. And then, you know, still after all this time, when the little Shannon inside would well up and be like, hang on a second, what are you doing here? It would always be like, I actually want to go, all I want to do is take a bunch of books, go to an isolated island and read and write. It used to come up quite often in the periods of when I let myself question the path that I was on. So then maybe I am a right side brain person. Is that the creative side again? It is, but also you seem to be taking a critical thinking approach to all of that, which is the left. And I think this is the problem that there's an enormous amount of critical thinking and analysis and synthesis that occurs in creative acts. So I don't know that I buy the left and right brain thing either. I think, it, I think it's a little bit silly. In fact, even if it turns out to be uh, true, I'm going to do some bunnies air quotes. Uh, even if it turns out to be true, I still reject it as a concept. I, I think it's too reductive mm. and brains, have crazy wiring don't they they're like an angela carter novel they're just vines within vines so yeah so in my uh university years um because i was doing a, a literature degree sort of all that turned out to be a cultural studies degree but i i don't really know how um but yes so so i got uh exposed to writers like um albert camus uh, Italo Calvino, Dostoevsky, Solzhenitsyn, Atwood, um, Jean Rees, uh, Alain Rob Grillet, and so it goes on and on and on. Um, and they have all been f- quite influential. Um, I think the, the reason why I've just rattled off some names is it's it's kind of a forest of influence at this point. I think earlier on you can pick bits out and go that was that was tremendously important. Um, as we move into the towards the present, there are so many influences it gets really difficult. Um, I also wrote a quick list of current influences, if you like, or um, would be further influences like um, Jorge Luis Borges, who I've read for years, but I feel like there's still more about him, his writing that is finding influence in me. Uh, Haruki Murakami, uh, Shanji Io, and his and he 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 writes graphic novels um, or manga, um, but there's the visual style that he has and the ideas I feel um, have had an influence on me textually. Uh, Taiko Kono, who if you've never heard of her, you wouldn't be alone, but she's an incredible, incredible writer who's only had one book um, translated into English uh, called Toddler Hunting and Other Stories. And that should tell you what you need to know there. Uh, Tessa Moshveg, uh, I think that's how you say her name. I'm a huge fan. Yes. Uh, I love the way that she keeps finding new sort of uh, creative angles for her writing. She's, I, I, I don't think she's able to be pigeonholed. I know people are giving it a real red hot go at the moment. Uh, but I don't, I don't think she's a, a writer that has a pigeonhole. Mariana Enrique, whose new novel has just come out, um, which I'm just 
And you're off to bite today. I'm off to bite today, folks. This is why we have to go. I I can't be hanging around here talking at you people all day. (laughs) Got to go into the city and get Mariana Enrique's new novel. Um, Michael Faber, uh, Crimson Petal and the Mm. Wine, that had a big impact on me because it was the first book I ever reviewed. And it was everything, apparently, that I would not want to read. And then I read it and it was absolutely everything I wanted to read. And that was a big shock to me because I'd gotten very good at self-curating. And I suppose tying it back to what we were saying at the beginning, uh, his book was a reminder that one needs to be a little less careful in curating their own content because there's amazing things out there to read. Uh, and once you start becoming too focused uh, and and plasticized as a reader, um, you really lose that opportunity to to browse. Yes, um, I think that's a great point to end up on. But before we move on, I just have to say it. It's because at the moment we're talking about current influences. You are the biggest influence for me at the moment as a reader and a writer, because you read one of my pieces or you helped me work on a piece called Tale of Nine Lives. But before that, you mentioned that I reminded you of a Japanese writer that you've mentioned, the author of Hotel Iris. Mm, Yeah. And from that, you encouraged me to read that. So from you, I've now ventured into so many different authors that I never would have otherwise picked up. I was very much in the fantasy realm. Uh, But now I've read Atwood, I've read Japanese authors, I've read, I'm reading Murakami now, I'm reading so much more and the breadth of authors and different styles has just been amazing. Um, Yeah, so thank you very much. Oh gosh, that's that's lovely. I didn't see that coming. Um, Yeah, it's, we're we're kind of going through our Japanese phase a little bit, aren't we? Although I feel like we're heading into Korea. I, I got a feeling that Korea is calling. Um, which should be very exciting. We'll see what happens on this podcast. You know, stay tuned, folks, like and subscribe. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't said that in a while. Yeah. No, you haven't. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's us, isn't it, in a nutshell? That's where we're at. Yep, that's the wrap. So this was all the books that have influenced us as readers and writers and Gareth has got to go off and follow his views and get that Marina, <laughs> that every, yeah, Mariana Enriquez book. Yes, and I'm, I I actually can't remember the title of it, but it'll be in the show notes, no doubt. Uh, it will. And I'm sure we'll. This is going to be it. big show notes. Yeah, yeah, my God, yes, it is, isn't it? Hate to be you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will get these show notes to you folks. Um, definitely pick up some of these books. They are amazing. And also just to point out, these are all personal opinions. You can obviously love Stephanie Myers if you choose. Um, that's the benefit of having such a breadth of writers and readers. That's that's very good. I, I can see how you're trying to avoid hate mail now. And, yeah, maybe that will work. So I agree. Uh, whatever you like's fine with me. I didn't mean any of it. Apologies and don't cancel me. Oh, I meant everything. <laughs> Bella Swan is not a good female role model. Curse you, Bella Swan. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right then. <laughs> okay. Well. Okay. Well, that's a wrap, and we'll see you next week, everyone. See you later. Bye.